welcome to Fossil's Neurotechnic. Uh, which is uh, co-chaired by Randall Critter. We're really, really happy today to have Thomas Macrina, and he'll be giving a talk on AI for whole brain circuit mapping. And that's a really, really, I think, timely talk. Uh, we had uh, a last uh, meeting on um, whole brain emulations by AI safety and how to speed them up. We're going to have a big workshop on that later uh, with uh, Swimming. Uh, but today, uh, um, I think we're going to have a little bit of like a preview, at least, of what we can expect for AI for the whole brain circuit mapping, which I think is like a you know relatively crucial uh, step for many of the technological advances that we'll be discussing that are perhaps a little bit further out. So thank you very, very much, Thomas, for joining. I'm going to post more info about you here in the chat. And yeah, I think I'll just uh, leave it to you to do your presentation. I'll be in the chat to monitor questions. Uh, maybe Randa also wants to leave with a few of them afterwards. Uh, and yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Thank you so, so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Thomas Macrina. I'm the CEO of Zeta AI which is a company that provides neural circuit reconstruction for other labs. Uh, I figured I'd share a bit about how we use AI in our reconstruction process um, and about how AI's progress is allowing us to recover larger neural circuits, including some maps of whole brain. Um, so I guess to start maybe with some definitions, what do I mean by neural circuits? I, I mean being able to describe neuron-to-neuron -neuron connectivity at the level of single synapses. So for example, this is the circuit for the entire nervous system of the worms, the elegans. You probably heard about this before, published in the 80s. Each node is a neuron, and edges indicate that there is at least one synapse between neurons. You could also call it a wiring diagram or a connectome. Yeah, so why do we want neural circuits? Well, major belief in neuroscience is that the function of a nervous system, how the brain perceives, manages memories, executes decisions, it's all strongly related to its circuitry. Uh, so if we want to fully understand these functions, we need to be able to observe the circuits on which they operate. You know, it's really no different than using the wiring diagram of an integrated circuit to understand its behavior. Uh, so a better understanding of structure function relationship, you know, could definitely help us understand how a healthy brain works. And relatedly, if miswirings underpin brain disorders. So this has long been hypothesized, uh, but without a wiring diagram, it won't be seen. Um, it could also help us understand low energy computing, the brain in, in 20 watts, um, is an existence proof that this can be done. Um, I've also heard rumors that simulation of behavior is actually progressing very well with flies, although I can't really comment on that all too much. I'm sure there, and there are plenty more that could be added to this list. So, I mean, neural circuits like genomes are just a fundamental idea. So they really enable so much other research. Um, I guess at this point, I'd, maybe it's worth pointing out that you can recover partial neural circuits, of course. Um, I mean, the vast majority of circuits that have been recovered up to this point have been partial. Um, but to really analyze this relationship, I think you want a whole brain. I think Sidney Brenner's famous for saying, you don't want somebody to contend, well, what about that wire? So whole brain's where it's at. How do we map neural circuits now? Um, so currently the gold standard approach to map or reconstruct a neural circuit starts by imaging the tissue with 3D electron microscopy. This type of image provides the nanometer resolution required to resolve the finer branches of neurons and the features that identify synapses. So after imaging, there are primarily three computational steps uh, to reconstruction. 
One is volume assembly, second cell segmentation, and the two combined to, as inputs to connectivity analysis. We'll get to the volume assembly in a bit. Um, for now, let's just focus on cell segmentation and connectivity analysis. So that starts that we have a nice aligned image. So cell segmentation identifies which regions of this image belong to each cell. In the video, we're identifying the pixels that belong to the same neuron in each imaging plane by tracking the same cross-section from image to image. We could do this for every neuron in the volume, of course, and here we're just doing it for two, this orange and blue neuron. Connectivity analysis is then where we detect synapses and then assign the neurons involved. So here's a synapse we're highlighting between the purple and yellow neuron the features here are the little circles in the purple neuron, which are vesicles with neurotransmitter, and the smudge between the two neurons are the receptor proteins of the yellow. So in this case, the purple axon can send the signal to the yellow dendritic spine. And you can see the representation in the 3D mesh on the right. You also notice that the EM image on the left has numerous other features, such as organelles like mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum. There's also nuclei. Um, all of these things can be segmented as valuable data for further analysis. All right, so now why is mapping hard? Why aren't we rolling in maps? Um, well, we need the nanometer resolution to resolve the smallest branches and neurons, but those branches can extend over millimeters or more. So sense of scale, here's the small volume we were just looking at, and here's the rough region that would contain the complete local arbors of a mouse's cortical neuron. So the small volume on the left is about one pixel on the image on the right. So the large physical volumes at high resolution mean that neural circuits require handling just a massive amount of data. So here's a plot with the number of neurons per brain and the rough volume in voxels for the 3D image that's required. So you'll see that it's 100 terabvoxels for a whole fly brain with 120,000 neurons, exavoxel for a mouse brain with 100 million neurons, Zetavoxel for a human brain with 100 billion. I mean, then the worms down there on the left, even though it doesn't look like much by comparison, it's still 10 voxels, which that was a lot of data to sift through, uh, especially in the 1970s. I think more impressively, it was all done manually on photoprints. So within Sidney Brenner's group at the MRC LMB in Cambridge, uh, there are two annotators. It took them 12 years to trace the entire 300 neurons of the worm. And over the next couple of decades, the field developed you know, GUIs and databases to help manage annotations, even incorporating collaborative tracing. But it was still a very manual process and reconstruction rates were slow, so neural circuits remained small. Uh, this process, it's, I mean, it's worth pointing out that this process has led to some smaller whole brains though. Um, for example, just last year, a team at Cambridge finished collaboratively tracing the thousand neurons in a whole fly larva. Still, the dream is for hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions, and hundreds of billions of neurons. So larger neural circuits really were in need of automation. Well, in the late 2000s, there was a breakthrough uh, when Sebastian Sung's group, which includes Varen Jane, who's speaking leader in this series, applied convolutional nets trained by supervised learning. So convolutional nets are standard workhorses in computer vision pipelines today, but in 2007, they were ahead of their time. This particular paper was five years before the beginnings of the deep learning revolution when AlexNet showed breakout performance on the ImageNet competition. So Sebastian's team set up a segmentation pipeline that looks something like this. Train the net 
to detect cell membranes in the EM using manually segmented images as a training set. This is called boundary detection. Uh, and then you use a watershed algorithm to over-segment boundary map into fragments. It's over-segmented because we want to prevent fragments from spanning two cells um, if there are any errors in the boundary map. And finally, we group these fragments together through a step called agglomeration, and that assembles the final segmentation. I mean, so the segmentation from this pipeline still wasn't perfect because um, EM wasn't perfect and the nets didn't have great capacity, but it produced accurate enough results that it was faster to correct the errors manually in a step called proofreading. So taken together, the whole process can be considered a semi-automatic reconstruction. So this, this concept, this semi-automatic pipeline, um, along with improvements to automate imaging, was a major inspiration to the field at the time. And over the 2010s, plans were made to finally tackle larger neural circuits. So notably, the team at Geniali Research Campus laid plans to reconstruct the neural circuit of a whole fly brain. And there was the IARPA microns program that aimed to reconstruct a cubic millimeter of mouse visual cortex and find the neural circuit of a cortical column. So now this is where the team at Zeta enters the stories because we were all members of the Sun Lab at Princeton in 2016 when the group was conscripted to the microns program. And so at this point, the largest volumes that had any sort of partial semi-automated reconstruction were about a terravoxel. So we were faced with improving the reconstruction accuracy by a thousandfold to handle a 1.5 petavoxel volume. I mean, there were many challenges that we overcame to do this, but I'll provide some details on the biggest one. And for that, I will have a brief segue to the imaging side of things. So when imaging such a large volume as a cubic millimeter, uh, in this case, we were partnered with the Allen Institute, and they chose to image uh, with serial section transmission electron microscopy. They did this with a company called Voxus Help, and for more details, you can check out Chris Owen's presentation in the seminar series from last year. Um, but here's an example of the serial sectioning portion in action. So the tissue in the small block on the right is being sliced into ultra-thin sections by a diamond knife. And they're picked up by this tape that looks like a film reel with windows in it. And then here's the example of a transmission electron microscope. So each section is then imaged. Right? So the reel is unrolled and the beam passes through the tissue onto a, a charge coupled device below. So they chose this platform because they felt it could scale the best to such large volumes. I mean, it's the fastest and cheapest. Unfortunately, the nature of the section handling introduces a significant amount of deformation and defects in the images. So I'll focus on a particularly tricky case, which are folds. Um, so these are five sequential images from the microns data before any correction. And I'm looping back and forth. So you can see the deformation in that no one object stays in a constant location. And the fold adds an extra complication in that it pinches the tissue in a discontinuous way. So the segmentation, at least the pipeline I described above, will fail if there's deformation. And that's because the membranes won't be continuous. And so segments will either be broken or possibly merged incorrectly with a different segment. And the deformations here are pretty large. So nearly all of the objects in the field of view and there are many, um, will have some sort of error. 
So now this is where we return to volume assembly from before. The goal of volume assembly is to remove the deformation. And one of the more basic volume assembly operations is on pairs of neighboring images. At the beginning of microns, volume assembly was based on traditional computer vision approaches that modeled the deformation with sparse correspondences using methods like block matching or SIFT-based features. Um, and then next, they interpolate between them. And so when there's a fold like here, this model doesn't properly describe the pinch. The, this field is kind of smoothing across it. So the resulting 3D EM from this volume assembly approach will still contain deformation in this area. And with the high rate of folds that were in the microns data, the existing approaches would have left us with a lot of deformation. And the segmentation would have made too many errors to make proofreading any neuron tenable. So we wrestled with this for a while. This, this seemed to be the showstopper. The solution we came up with was again to turn to convolutional nets. Uh, this time, particularly deep optic flow models that densely estimated the relative deformation between two neighboring images. Better still, our optic flow models didn't need any manual labels uh, because we figured out a way to train them in a self-supervised manner. These dense estimates allowed us to precisely remove the deformation caused by cracks and folds. Here's a high-res cutout from the final 3DEM, and you can see how the objects flow smoothly without any impact from the folds. They just, folds just kind of appear as scratches on the frame. So this approach to volume assembly dramatically reduced deformation in the final 3D EM, and that was really the major boost to reconstruction accuracy. But this is just one instance of many where we deployed more convolutional nets in our pipeline. Uh, so for reference, here's the initial segmentation pipeline. And at the end of microns, we had developed convolutional nets to segment defects, segment tissue, producing coatings of the image that are robust to noise, segment organelles such as nuclei mitochondrial myelin to use as agglomeration constraints, segment local semantic classes like axon dendrite glia to use as constraints, detect synapses, and assign uh, neighboring neurons involved. And that's not including the downstream uses to help in analysis. And on the other side, there's the supporting cast of systems engineering that's needed to to help deploy a pipeline like this. So that's like building interfaces with distributed cloud and on-prem storage um, to handle the multiple petabytes of data and the intermediaries, uh, distributed approaches to agglomeration that's free of stitching artifacts, distributed image operations, mesh generation, new data compression methods, uh, a collaborative proofreading and analysis system, and a, a crazy amount of cost optimization. And the point I'm trying to make is that the system is complex. I mean, like any good real-world AI system these days. Um, I mean, to build such a complex system that actually works, we really benefited a lot from advancements in industry with you know, deep learning frameworks like PyTorch or on-demand resources of cloud computing, and definitely from the increasing GPU cost performance. But anyways, at the end of Microns, which was about a year and a half ago, the research pipeline developed in the lab delivered a really accurate reconstruction of the cubic millimeter. So on the left is a sparse sample of some of the neurons contained in the volume. To execute all the network inference steps that I just described, we operated a cluster of about 1,000 GPUs for a month. 
Um, and now this it's accurate enough that with a few days, uh, someone can proofread a cortical neuron to recover all its local connections. Here's an example on the right is a pyramidal neuron that's had its dendrites and axons completely proofread. So proofreaders have already amassed a circuit of about 1300 neurons. I mean, this was a great accomplishment and a very large circuits will be recovered from this volume and, and papers are already coming from it. But as it is, the accuracy of our approach is still not good enough to require the or, yeah, to acquire the entire neural circuit with this cubic millimeter in a reasonable amount of time. But the accuracy is good enough for slightly smaller volumes. So shortly after our work on the microns data, we applied our pipeline to a whole fly-brain data set that was collected by Dobby Box Group at Genelia. The imaging volume is about 10 times smaller than microns, and that helped it have better quality uh, with a lower defect rate. And this allowed us to produce a really great automatic segmentation that saw neurons only require about 20 minutes of proofreading. This was accurate enough that the lab organized Flywire, a platform to crowdsource the proofreading and analysis of the entire data set. So with over 200 users from more than 50 labs, Flywire has put in 30,000 hours, um, 18 person years of proofreading. And at this point, it's, it's actually just a matter of weeks until the whole brain circuit is complete with over 120,000 neurons. So I've described two very lab-focused achievements. On a similar timeline, the Connectomics team at Google Research, led by Varen, um, also released a very accurate automatic reconstruction of a petascale slab of human cortex called H01, as well as a more central region of the fly brain called the hemibrain, and that was proofread to completion at Genelia. I mean, so based on the successes of all these reconstructions, we decided to start Zeta, uh, a company that offers circuit reconstruction services to other labs. And our mission is to make connectomics accessible to all researchers. A, a really, a large force behind starting the company was that we needed to retain the high level of tacit knowledge required to operate and improve this pipeline. And we chose to be a for-profit entity because we figured we'd be better incentivized to reduce costs, which is critical for the accessibility part. Right now, we're currently a team of eight, all former members of the lab that built the Microns pipeline. And we quickly rebuilt a similar pipeline to the one we had in lab, now in the company. And over the past couple of years of our existence, we've matched the efforts from the lab. We reconstructed a second cubic millimeter of mouse cortex from the Allen Institute. And we've also reconstructed the ventral nerve cord or spinal cord equivalent of a fruit fly that was collected by Wei Chung, Li, Wei Chung Li's lab at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and just like Flywire, we set that the VNC up in a platform called Fancy, where another 20 labs are collaboratively proofreading it. We've also processed numerous other Terascale data for a number of other labs. So a quick recap of the past 10 years. Connectomics has gone from a field with just a handful of smaller neural circuits with hundreds of neurons to being able to semi-automatically recover whole brain circuits with hundreds of thousands of neurons. The reconstruction pipelines have helped process three separate cubic millimeters of mammalian cortex, and they're all being analyzed and delivering insights. But really the sweet spot seems to be these whole brains of insects and other invertebrates that are on their way. The degree to which the fly community has embraced Flywire and Fancy 
um, and Janelia and Google's Hemibrain dataset and, and other data sets that are in the works has just been a great success story for connectomics. It seems that the push for larger neural circuits a decade, a decade ago is finally paying off. So the success, though, has had many call to now reconstruct a whole mouse brain over the next decade. So at an exavoxel, this would be another thousand-fold scale-up over our petascale reconstructions. In the next couple months, the National Institute of Health will kick off its five-year Brain Connects program to start investigating the feasibility of tackling a mouse brain. So to put in perspective uh, the challenge that's at hand, right now, we need to move from spending 40 hours proofreading a single neuron to proofreading 40 neurons in just under a minute. I mean, this is a tall order, but it doesn't really feel out of the realm of possibility. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, we just overcame this 1,000x scale-up in the past 10 years. Um, I mean, for more in-depth analysis of the challenges facing this problem, you can look up the Brain Connectivity Workshop that the NIH organized a couple years ago. Um, but for now, I'll give you a high-level view on kind of what, what we think needs to happen on the reconstruction side. I'll start with the difficulties that kind of begin upstream of the reconstruction process. So some of our current failure modes are related to locations in the image that are either very low contrast or they have unstained or missing membranes. So these difficulties could be solved by just better sample preparation, which is not just a very simple, uh, <laughs> it's not going to be a simple solution. But the Helmstetter group recently published a whole mouse brain staining protocol that does seem very promising. Um, Many of our errors are also related to image defects, poor axial resolution, and low signal-to-noise ratio. Folds are just one example of one of those. Um, so improvements in imaging could really help here. That could include scaling block face imaging, uh, which is an approach that's been championed by Janelia, particularly Ken Hayward. And it produces isotropic images with fewer defects. It's a, it's a bit more of an expensive platform, but that could easily be offset by its boost to reconstruction accuracy. Alternatively, serial section TEM approaches could be improved if we consider electron tomography to achieve similar isotropic aims and fewer defects. This has been done on a, on a very small scale, so it's unclear whether this is going to work on the semi-thick sections of whole brains that we're looking for. Um, but if there's a way forward, it may also really benefit from AI, and that's something that we're beginning to experiment with say, taking the tilt series and coming up with a reconstruction of the image before further processing. All right, so now then there are the errors from the limitations of the current AI system, particularly some segmentation problems that are associated with what I'm going to call rare events. So a possible cause right now is that we have training sets that are, um, are really only a tiny fraction of the entire data set where we're deploying them. And that's because generating, it's very costly to generate manual segmentation labels. You know, we fail at locations that are really not well represented in the training set. So some possible solutions here, we could explore new approaches in, in building these training sets, like um, maybe leveraging all the proofreading that's been, that's been done in these, these three cubic millimeters that I've discussed and other work. 
Um, I mean, they might be considered lower quality since there will be a bias to leave in segmentation errors of the previous model. We could also explore better hard example mining techniques. For example, generating um, targeted training samples at locations where a proofreader has made an edit. I mean, really what would be nice if we could leverage all of the data, possibly through some sort of self-supervised pre-training. And so another possible cause here for our failures though is that our models are just have such low capacity um, and we really need to work on increasing it. I mean, this would suggest that maybe we consider new architectures and representations. So the large language models that are running amok um, are powered by transformers. Uh, so transformers haven't been a clear winner over convolutional nets and vision tasks yet, but that could definitely change soon. Um, maybe a more clear-cut path is to advance the work that's already begun on object-centric representations rather than the boundary maps I was describing earlier. And that could help in situations where we have the missing or ambiguous membranes. It could also help thin objects and poor, poor resolution. So for example, again, the Connectomics team at Google Research has developed a flood filling network, but that's a little on the costly side because um, it needs to run multiple times over the same region of the data set. Um, alternatively, our group has worked on generating metric-based embeddings of the images that assign similar vector vectors to voxels in the same object. Um, the, work right there, the work now, at least in that approach, is how to adequately scale this to larger volumes. I mean, finally, we'll want to develop methods for error detection as well as correction. Uh, this could mean training models to mimic the proofreaders in identifying and fixing errors. I mean, there have been some hand-designed approaches that have been deployed on the Microns data for specific failure modes, like finding how to split two objects or a single object that has two nuclei in it. Uh, we've also explored this with convolutional nets on a smaller scale, but we haven't deployed anything yet. Of course, all of this needs to be done with, while keeping an eye on cost um, and then storing and processing an exabyte of data, you know, is going to make even the most mundane ob or operations extremely expensive. So yeah, like I said, tall order doesn't feel totally out of the, outside the realm of possibility. Um, at least, I mean, you know, we're not short on ideas. Really, I think the bottom line will just be whether or not we can find the talent to execute um, the AI and systems engineering skill set um, to tackle these data sets. It's just in high demand these days. So with that, um, some quick acknowledgments. The Micron's data set was supported by IARPA. Flyware was also partly IARPA as well as the NIH. Uh, Fancy was funded by the NIH. And I'd like to thank the groups that collected images and supported the proofreading platform. And thanks to the team at Zeta. I guess final takeaways for anyone who zoned out. So AI has improved over the past 10 years that semi-automatic reconstruction methods can allow us to recover neural circuits from whole brains of insects. And if we want to tackle a whole mouse brain, this is gonna require another thousand fold increase in reconstruction accuracy. But that's about the same level of improvement we saw over the past decade. And we have plenty of ideas on how to, how to move forward in the next, but we can use all the help we can get. And maybe after that decade, we can talk about the next thousand fold challenge. But I guess before that, um, we can talk about questions. Wonderful. I love the ending. Um, this is really, really, really great. Um, 
And you have like, I think a really great audience here uh, right now to answer, uh, to, to ask a lot of questions and maybe even answer a few others, obviously. Like I, I'm very, very, uh, yeah, I'm very pleased with who we have in the audience today. Really cool. Uh, and we have a lot of questions already. So I'm, I'm going to stop talking now, but I just want to say thank you. It was very concise, really clear uh, with a ton of like really exciting data in there and uh, some good outlook, I think, on the future. So how about we take Micah first and then you go Randall. For the proofreaders, if I understand correctly, they're still human at this point. Is that correct? That is right. Yes. Is is the plan here to continue to improve the AI until you can get rid of the proofreaders, or are you working on replacing the proofreaders themselves with an AI? Um, I mean, that always that, that's always the goal. But I think for the near and medium term, there's always going to need be a need for a human in the loop. So I think whatever. So you know, if we come up with a way to automate proofreading. There will still be proofreaders somehow. Maybe it's you know reinforcement learning with human feedback or something like that that will make sure that the, the proofreaders that we currently have at least still have a job. Great. That that um that, that that's a nice um that's a nice question. Uh, Randall, you go. Okay. I hope you can hear me. Um. Yeah. Uh. So a wonderful presentation, by the way, and uh, I'm currently the the head scientist, sort of uh, software engineer at Voxa. So I'm pretty well aware of the stuff that went into making this happen. But um, I just for people who maybe aren't as um, as comfortable with all of the terminology used and all of the uh, ideas behind this, it might be really good to get some idea of what you mean when you say things like um, behavior or to reconstruct. Because you mentioned, for example, that there is a rumor that there's a group out there that's having really good success at, you know, uh, recovering behavior from a connectome. And so then one wonders, what does behavior mean in this context? And what does it mean to reconstruct? How far do you go? What's the difference between a reconstructed neural circuit and a neural circuit that you can run on a computer? I, that's, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert in this case. Um, the, the, the simulation part I got secondhand actually from Sebastian that there's work at Columbia that's that's making good progress. So I think this might be the the Flybrain Observatory, and um, I forget if it's neural kernel or something like that. Um, but I guess you know the you can look up some of the recent successes from the Fly Connectum, particularly from the Hemibrain, um, the how a fly navigates through its environment based on um, a, a, a circle, oh. sorry, the, the ring attractor in, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. This is uh, this the is, central I, complex. Thank you, Nick. That's exactly it. Um, so how the fly navigates through the world and based on the circuitry in the central complex. And I, I guess there's been good, good work going on there. Um, might, you might also uh, address Randall's other question about just what exactly is the end product of a reconstruction. So where does the reconstruction stop and what what's remaining to go from there to simulation? Oh. Yeah, actually, Randall, unfortunately, I think I should pass on that one. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe you don't have to answer what, you know, what it takes to get from there to simulation of behavior or to simulation of the circuit and in every detail, but rather just kind of, um, 
you know, what would you consider sort of where does it, where does your work end and the work take off that, uh, that people doing simulations and publishing papers on that are going to be doing, um, you know, uh, just so people know how much of a circuit is defined at that point. You know, you know that there are synapses between neuron A and neuron B, and you know uh, how many uh, vesicles you see in there and things like that, but you may not know everything about the expected, say, uh, I don't know, the exponentials and their parameters and everything in there, right? Because it, that's a whole other step. You're going to do something like, a, you know, a, a, an analysis to recover parameters that you need for a compartmental reconstruction or something of that nature. Yeah. So, I mean, are you, you saying that the, the connectome is only one facet of what you might need for a faithful reconstruction of behavior? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but you know, it's more just to give people an idea of how far is this, because there's this, there's a tendency when people talk about achieving, uh, you know, the being able to map out the entire fly brain or map out the entire mouse brain and, and how far are we to talk about the problem of acquisition, which is, is definitely what your talk is about. And that's perfectly fine. I just, I like it when, when people understand where this fits into the bigger picture of just how much, uh, there is to do in really understanding, say what you've actually recovered from a mouse or from a fly. I mean, it's, it's also worth pointing out that uh, the connectomes that we're producing are just static snapshots when a connectome is, is an evolving thing over the life of the organism. Um, and of course, correlating functional activity to a static map that is also, that does, does change, um, you know, there, there are complications there as well. So you'd have to also figure yeah. out how to model changes in the connectome as well. Plasticity. Yeah. Wonderful. Marcus, you next. Yes. Uh, just a quick question. So I was asking Sebastian 12 years ago, uh, how long would it take to reconstruct a single human brain? Uh, and his answer at that time was 40 years. Um, with the technology you have nowadays, how long would it take to reconstruct a single human brain? <laughs> well, I would say it wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth attempting just because the accuracy of the current approach would, you know, um, I mean, all right, put it this way. So the, to reconstruct perfectly all the neurons in a cubic millimeter with the current accuracy, um, I think is on the order of a thousand human years. Um, right. And so, you know, times a million to get you from petavoxel to zetavoxel. Hmm. So there you go. A thousand million years. Still some years. time. Still some time. Okay. Thanks very much. Sure. Andrew, you go. Great. Hey, Thomas. Andrew from E11 here. Um, so you mentioned that Zeta's goal is to make the circuit mapping available to all neuroscientists, all researchers. Can you talk a little bit about like what your roadmap is? What do you think it will take to you know get to that goal? Yeah. So I think there are two two facets here. One is making these these great resources available to everybody, which is kind of what Flywire has done. You know, it's. Anybody who wants access to the fly connectome can quickly go in. Um, I mean, up until, I mean, for the past couple of years, you had to proofread to extract the circuit of interest. Now that the connectome is actually reaching draft status, you know, people can go and, and do whatever analysis they want. So making more of those resources available, that's, that's one facet. Second facet is just driving down the cost of our current technology. 
so that anybody who can, who has access to a 3D imaging, a 3D EM imaging facility can then use our services on top of it. Gotcha. Thanks. Totally. Um, well, um, we have about 19 more minutes left. And at this point, uh, we'll do the main thing that we always do here. I ask questions until people stop me. So just raise your hand again or I'll put them in the chat if you're in a location where you uh, can't talk. And then I'll ask them. Or, okay, Randall, you go, Robin, you go. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, my, I guess my totally different question is just about Zeta and your plans there. Um, what is Zeta's sort of, what, uh, you know, I, I see that you're trying to improve the cost performance of the procedure, but are you also trying to branch out to other possible applications, other industries, or are you sticking closely to this problem domain? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, right now, I think we're, we're totally focused on 3D EM on Connectomics. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. There are a lot of other applications that we could consider, but I think it would just be a distraction because AI winds up being so bespoke for the problem space. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we want to derail ourselves from the mission. Wonderful. Robin. I, I didn't hear the whole talk because I would, had some connection problems, but um, it looks like great work. Uh, it looks like you're focused on the topology, the shape of the cells and the points at which they connect. So I wondered if you or someone else could just talk to, what do we know about how sufficient it is just to know the shape of the, the topology as opposed to some chemical densities of some sort, uh, you know, some elsewhere in the cell, that is even the darkness you were looking, you, you could have looked for other features of the cells more, but you're focused on topology. What do we know about how sufficient that is? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so that's, I, I didn't really get in too much to um, what we extract at the level of synapses. Um, this, is, of course, is Nick Turner's work, who's here in the audience. So maybe Nick should step in if I, if I don't explain this well. But uh, we detect all the number of voxels that participate in the postsynaptic density. And you could consider that a correlate of synaptic strength. And I think there's been work, I, I don't have the reference at the top of my head, that correlates the functional strength with the size of the PSD, with the volume of the PSD. I, all, people will also count the number of vesicles and things like that, which is something that we, we haven't done in our pipeline, but have considered implementing. Um, we have detected spine apparatus. That's an indicator um, of maybe some sort of a binary quality to synapses. Are they large or small? That was a paper we had that come out a couple of years ago. Uh, and Nick, am I missing anything? Uh, yeah. Well, I think um, in terms of local measurements, I think that's a really good summary of the kinds of stuff that we look at in terms of um, trying to figure out, you know, roughly what an estimate of this of the communication strength is we think is at this specific site. Maybe Robin, you're asking a more general question of, you know, given let's let's even say we had that nailed down correctly and we had all these local transmission sites and all of their locations on a cell perfectly mapped out, how, what does that tell us about the function of the cell as a whole? Um, and I don't think that's fully worked out yet. I think there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot we don't know about how um, signals are integrated um, to produce the signals that the cell, you know, any given cell will then output in different behaviors and different populations. That, that's a lot of stuff that's being worked out now that where people have uh, different, different opinions on it. So I think that's still work to be done. 
a follow-up question, if you will, uh, I guess, if you took the shapes that you produce and then you tried to do a, uh, categorization of them, some sort of high dimensional space near his neighbor or whatever, whatever you're going to do, how well do they separate into categories? That might be an indication of whether you're getting enough information, at least to type them. Oh, yeah, Go for it, Tommy. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that people are, are very actively doing, are trying to define self-types based on morphology. Um, there's a lot of work from the Allen Institute to also try and correlate shapes, at, morphologies at a light level where they have access to, um, you know, genetic cell typing methods as well. So, the, you know, that's morphology is supposed to be this kind of key that links between genetic and genetic identifications or classifications of cell types. Uh, Nick, do you have anything you want to add there? No, I think that's great. I think, uh, I, I think a lot of that work is being done. I think um, one kind of nice point to make about this current work is that this is the kind of dream data set that you want to do this work, um, assuming that you have a decent functional description of the cells. And um, the the largest data set we mentioned, that, that roughly cubic millimeter volume, um, has some functional description of the cells along with it. So that could easily be the kind of work that comes out of these kinds of data sets to better understand, you know, what the, as you said, the topology of the, the synapses, you know, how that leads to different functional properties. Uh, Nick, would you mind, uh, you know, adding a link to maybe your work also in the chat for those who don't know, uh, so they can look it up uh, as well. Oh, at this point. I think a lot of the stuff that Tommy pointed out, I'm involved in. So I think if you follow those links, you'll, you'll see my name there. Um, so I think that's probably as good of a, as a pointer as you'll get. Okay, good. Noted. And um, okay, wonderful. Robin, I still see your hand up. Do you have a third follow-up question? You're free to go for it. Nope. Okay, good. Well, then again, I'll do it. goes on again. Okay, wow, that's interesting. Um, and so I usually have like a few more, like, I guess, foresighty and forward-looking questions um, that uh, we really, really love the ideas on. And one of them is, you know, if you look ahead, maybe like five years, 10 years, perhaps too long, but like, you know, as far as it is possible, um, and I know that people don't like to speculate all that much, but like, you know, if you have your speculation head on for a moment, like, what do you think could be possible in five years? Like, what would you get really excited about um, if, if, if we got there? What would I be really excited about within the field of connectomics if we got there? I mean, five years time, if we had that thousand fold improvement kind of in the bag, um, that, that would be, yeah, that would be wild because I think that would, that would start making it so that we can do comparative connectomic studies very easily. And I think that's where, at least that's where I see a lot of personal interest in comparing, you know, connectomes between organisms within the same species or between species or, you know, a healthy brain versus a sick brain sort of thing. Um, yeah. And so having kind of the ability to say, yeah, sure, there's still some error rate, but it's negligible. And I can just run my analysis with the circuit that falls out of the reconstruction pipeline. Uh, and like, if you think on the path there, like, what do you think is like the number one thing that's holding you back from it? Like, let's just say someone on YouTube or even in this chat uh, is getting excited about the field uh, and it's relatively new, but wants to kind of like help. Uh, and it's like, you know, pretty flexible in terms of like, you know, what kind of like specific career path they pursue or like project they tackle, like what would you recommend they go into? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, you know, there needs to be a lot of work on the imaging side, like I mentioned at the end of the presentation. Um, but I really, there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of unexplored territory within the reconstruction. Um, so all those ideas I was mentioning at the end, you know, are all things that we've touched on. But the the number of engineers, especially AI engineers within the field, are relatively small. Um, so I don't think, you know, there's there's a lot of things that could be explored there. And I think that's a really high leverage location for somebody um, who's who's kind of entering the field. You can, you know, you don't need a lot of resources necessarily to try and tackle some of these problems. You can explore them on a smaller scale. For instance, somebody could could easily take the microns data that exists out there and start trying to train an error detection uh, method with the, with the meshes that exist. Um, it doesn't have to be some complicated, you know, thousand GPU experiment. It could be something you do on your local workstation, no problem. Yeah, it, 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 it echoes a lot to like our UU Biotech and Longevity seminars where it's also like, okay, computation based uh, machine learning people come move in here. Let's, there's a lot to do. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think, I think they are, they are actually doing which, um, which is nice. It just takes a bit of time, I think, to build up the pipeline and the jargon and so forth. And, you know, speaking of like other relevant fields, like I think at Fawcett, at least we, you know, are getting very excited about like more interdisciplinary collaboration. We do think that like much progress happens at the intersection of fields. Like, do you think that if someone from a different field will, you know, to stumble on this presentation, like what other fields do you think, you know, your work is potentially really relevant for? Like, is there a particular kind of like, you know, interdisciplinary collaboration that you see happening in like, like three to five years, like something that, you know, perhaps is not super on someone else's radar yet? Hmm. That that's a good question. I don't I don't know that I've thought at this level in a um, in a while. I mean, something that so something I haven't I didn't talk about um, is that the microns data set before that the tissue was excised from the mouse um, and prepared for imaging, it had functional imaging done on it. So the mouse watched a bunch of well a bunch of stimuli. I think Mad Max was actually one of the stimuli. And they recorded functional activity from the visual cortex, um, and then and then you know then we mapped the brain, and so there's there's definitely work to go back and forth between the functional data and the circuit to see if you can recapitulate any of that behavior. Which I guess Randall, that's probably a better answer to your question. Um, you know, we could define what's the error in recovering the functional activity there, but um, yeah, that. Uh, so maybe collaborations with people who are, I mean, this is already kind of happening. It just hasn't happened maybe in enough, um, on enough data sets yet. This is called functional connectomics. So you want, you need people who work on the functional side of things to work together with the people who now are generating these circuit diagrams, the structural side of things. Sorry, that's, that's a really kind of weak answer, I feel, in terms of a collaboration, because it's kind of already, it's, it's already happening. Well, then, then that's a good start. Uh, we'll take it. Um, and, you know, I guess like one thing that it's perhaps a little bit of a harder question uh, actually is, you know, like as a nonprofit, we really try to kind of like advance technologies for the benefit of life, which like really means advancing technologies, but also having like an eye on the risk. And if you, you know, from your friend vantage point, like do you see any potential things that we, you know, should look out for from like, a societal, ethical, economic point of view that, you know, could be coming down the line with this type of technology or, or you, you, you think it's like generally pretty good to, to advance? Like is there anything we should be, or that folks that building this technology that you have on their radar uh, as, they, uh, as they go forward? Um, 
I, I mean, there there are many more experts in this audience on the dangers or whatever the, the concerns about mind uploading. That's really the only thing I can think of, though, that I would flag. Um, Nick, I don't know if you thought more about this than I have. Sorry, I was uh, working with the chat for a second. Could you reiterate a bit? Uh, it, uh, what are, do you see any dangers down the road from Connectomics? Not in the near future. Um, I think the practical difficulties of reconstructing something are just so hard that getting something dangerous out of it would be difficult for now. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll definitely make that uh, part of our discussion also in the in-person workshop that we have um, our product, uh, more the whole family uh, side of things. Um, but yeah, uh, okay, thank you. Um, there's a bunch more questions. Maybe one of them that I just really want to get to is um, that if people really, really get excited about your work, like your work in particular, and not just the general field, is there something that they can do to help you work along? Like, this is a shameless talk moment. If you can say anything, uh, you know, like, I don't know, we're hiring like for specific roles or, you know, like we need funding for a project, like can be relatively concrete. And um, usually I think, you know, people do get very excited and then I get this email with like, hey, I want to talk to you, how can I help? And so I usually try to rope in that question at the end. Um, so I don't have to do a little bit. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I mean, look, we're, we're hiring for anybody who has expertise in, in machine learning. Um, and your expertise can be, you know, if it's years, that's great. If it's months, weeks, it's also fine. Um, you know, we, we, might, we might point you to other resources. But like I said, if, if you're looking for a project, a side project to get started on, um, trying to figure out ways to make some of the things that I mentioned at the end of the presentation there happen using the Microns data, you know, mimicking proofreaders, um, trying some sort of self-supervised approach. Maybe trying to investigate, you know, doing some direct investigation of scaling laws um, for segmentation. But yeah, those those are all great places to start. Of course, you know, always you're welcome to reach out to us. You can find us on the website at zeta.ai. Um, and, you know, my, my email is tmacrina at zeta.ai. I'll put it in the chat. Wonderful. Uh, okay, good. Now that we have that out of the way, uh, perhaps a more like, you know, philosophical question. And again, guys, if you want to ask a question in the last five minutes, just pile in there. I won't be mad. But um, I think, you know, one thing that usually about the thing also for folks entering the space and you is like if there have been any more like cultured paradigm shifts since you've been doing that work um, where people thought extremely differently along this work and where now, you know, you're just in a, a completely different paradigm. You're like, well, if you read a paper from back then, there's like certainly some things that are just aren't relevant anymore. Like this kind of like kind of contextual knowledge that you only have if you've been in the fields for a long time and that you can't block when you're outside. Like has, has there been anything like that where you're like, I mean, you, you already talked a lot about it maybe with Transformers to some extent, you know, but um, anything like that, that would be useful to know when people enter the space with yeah. people. That's a good question. Yeah, what do we, what do we take for granted now? I mean, Training in that is not hard anymore. And training it on multi-GPUs, not not a problem. I mean, harnessing a whole bunch of GPUs, also not a problem. Those were all really difficult things at the start of this project. Um, I mean, that's those are those are gimmies, I feel. I, I, within the field, of course, just having a neural circuit that was that was a major accomplishment. Even having a, a, a small circuit for a couple hundred neurons was, you know, totally paperworthy. 
I mean, it's it's still paper worthy if you have a good result today. Well, actually, this is a good point. So, um, you know, the analysis of the neural circuits right now is still extremely tough. Like, you you put in all the effort, you've got you've done your proofreading, and you've pulled out your neural circuit, especially from cortex, where um, it's it just it feels messy, or maybe there hasn't been as much groundwork done on the cell typing or something like that. I I'm not exactly clear what the bottlenecks are. But you want all this, um, you, you realize you want all this additional metadata, you want compartment analysis, you want neurotransmitter predictions, um, you want to know the sign of the cell, of course. That's like, it, it takes a long time to do any reason, to pull any reasonable insight out of this data. And maybe that's somebody who's coming, you know, more from the computer science side. I don't have um, questions that I'm looking for within this data. It's more of a fishing expedition whenever I've looked at a neural circuit. So yeah, this that, that might not be the case for somebody who comes from a neuroscience background. But still, the fact remains that they're, you know, from that Micron's data set, there's only one or two real results that have been pulled out of it so far. Not that more aren't on the way. It's just it, it takes a while for papers to come, for analysis to be completed and papers to be written. Cool. Okay, then meta-science problem. <laughs> Is, to, is, is, is I think only one that, that is definitely on the line. Okay, maybe the last question, um, you know, um, is, you know, like in the next, um, you know, few months to a year, what are you gonna guys, uh, what, are, what are you guys really gonna kind of like focus on? What's in your like immediate pipeline now? Yeah, that's another good question. Well, I mean, we have, we have a long list of customers. Um, we have a lot of kind of fly brain size data sets that we're tackling for different species, also within fly, um, some whole nervous systems, even that's pretty cool. But on the research side, we're hopefully we'll be embarking on this Brain Connects program soon, and that'll we'll we'll turn back to research mode. And I think we'll work on we'll probably start with something around the self supervision with the the training. We'll we'll look back more into the metric embeddings. Um, those are just those are grounds that we've kind of explored before. So I think we would return to them to see if there's yeah. If they could be extended quickly, quick games. Okay, very exciting. Hey, thank you so so much. Um, I think, yep, you definitely had uh, drew a really wonderful audience, um, and it was a really great, super fixing presentation. We we're really excited about your work. Thank you so so much for joining us. Um, and I'm hoping it wasn't the last time that we have you on and uh, hear about progress. So please do reach out uh, if you have anything, you know, like any major advances that you want to share because as you can tell, people do show up and I'm very excited for it. Uh, thanks everyone else for joining too. Uh, I'll see you here for the next one uh, in a few weeks from now. Uh, and many of you are the in-person workshop in uh, May as well that I posted earlier in the chat. Thanks a lot uh, and I'll see you all very soon. Bye-bye. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date, or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.